The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And this scripture has been our home for these past few weeks as we've been discussing the great enemy of God and his people, that old serpent, the devil, who is called Satan. And the main point of these messages has been to make you aware of how powerful that this enemy is and to help you to understand the relentless efforts that Satan makes against you to destroy your effectiveness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible calls him the God of this world, and he is the prince and power of the air, and that is an indication of the great uh, power that Satan has, the great enemy of our souls. He is the God of this world system, so that we can say that every evil that's perpetrated anywhere in the world has Satan as its source. Jesus said that uh, he was the father of liars. He's the father of all lies. He is the father of evil. Satan was the first to become evil. He started with the rebellion in heaven, and then he brought that rebellion to earth when he tempted Adam to sin, and Adam followed that temptation. Satan told Adam that God was holding something back from him, and God was keeping him from being all that he could possibly be, and Adam bought into that lie of Satan, and so the whole human race fell into sin. But I suppose the power of Satan could not be seen any clearer than what he's done in religion. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about this in the last part of the message today. But the fastest growing religion in the world today is the religion of self. Man was created to glorify God, but even in the Christian church, there is a religion of self and prosperity that's taken over to become the fastest growing faction of Christianity in the world today. The Bible says that we are bad, but Satan's teaching says, well, you're not really all that bad. The Bible says that we are depraved in our will and in our conscience and in our actions so that we can never please God. But Satan says, no, people are basically good. People are basically good, and pleasing self is better than pleasing God anyway. The Bible says that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself, but Satan's teaching says, no, you are to love self above everything else, no matter what that means or how it affects anyone else. Now, we don't really need to talk so much about what Satan does in the pagan religions of the world because we have our own problems. We have our problems in churches that claim the faith of Jesus Christ, and yet they are outposts of Satan just as much as a mosque in Mecca. Now, I turn your attention to our text verses that describe Satan's deceit. Ephesians 6, verse number 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness and high places. And this is what we're tasked with. We are tasked with fighting all of these wiles of the devil. That's his evil devices, his methods of attack. And as I've said, usually all of that funnels into this one great desire, and that is to exalt self. And that was Satan's original 
desire, and that's the way that he most often operates. The deceit that he knows the best is the deceit that he perpetrated upon himself in which he said, I do not have to listen to God. I want to be God. I should be God. And that's the problem for every person who turns his back on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why you read things like you do in the newspapers, why you see things on the television, when every evil agenda is passed off as our inherent right, then we're saying that our opinion matters more than God. The only thing that really matters is our opinion, and we don't have any other authority or a higher authority than self, which is the same as saying that self is our God. I've had many conversations with people who smugly explain the way that they think that the world should be. Someone told me the other day about uh, an argument over homosexual rights. And if you were to ask someone, well, what is your justification for saying that something that is so unnatural is an inalienable right? And what is the justification that you get for that? Why do they have that opinion? Well, the authority of, is this and only this? This is my opinion. That's what I think. And so they never imagine that, that God is not on their side because they can't imagine a God who thinks differently than them. And so they make God in their image, and that is the same problem as Satan's, I should be God. Now today I want to introduce you to another thought about Satan. In the scriptures, Satan is never presented as being independent and self-directing. That might surprise you, because ultimately, even Satan himself is Jehovah's servant. He can't do anything outside of God's control. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Job chapter 2. We've looked at this scripture a couple of times in the study, and I've used it to explain uh, the origin of Satan, his activities. Uh, But now I want you to see from this that not now, not before, not in the future is Satan an independent agent. He always was and always will be the subject of God. In Job chapter 2 and in verse number 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Now after those verses comes more testing of Job. But we see in these scriptures how that God directed it, how that he put limitations on what Satan can do. God said that he was moved against him, or that God himself was moved against him. And what Satan did was to vindicate Job and God's word. He said that God said Job is upright. God said that Job is one who fears me and he shuns evil. But Satan said, no, he's not. He's going to curse you to your face that the only reason that he serves you is because of all the things that you give him, but you stretch forth the hand and you take away everything that Job has and he will curse you. And what did God do? He used Satan to prove Job's mettle. He used Satan to show that Job was anchored to his faith and then ultimately to glorify God. And so with Satan's help, 
Satan gave us, uh, God gave us a lasting testimony of a real faith to show that God is sovereign over men and angels and the entire created order. Now, when Satan started out with this temptation, he had no idea of what he was going to do, how that test would actually vindicate God's authority, and that he actually set up an example of how we can defeat him, that we can defeat him by our faith in God. So, folks, this world really is about God. It's all about him. He's in control of all things and even uses his enemies to accomplish his purposes. Well, that brings us to the continuation of our thoughts from last week. Uh, we're discussing the fourth part of our outline, and that is Satan's destruction. And his destruction is a two-part operation. There are two phases to his destruction that are separated by a period of 1,000 years. And that interim period is the period in which Christ brings his kingdom to this earth. That'll be the subject of next week's message. And so this message is preparation for that one. Then we'll finish up in the following weeks with Satan's final destruction. But for the time being, we want to continue to look at the first phase of Satan's destruction. This is the beginning of the end. And when this happens, we know how long it will be before Satan is gone forever. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. And while you turn there, I want to mention that God is going to use Satan during the tribulation. There are seven years that are tribu of tribulation that will come on the earth uh, just after Jesus comes to rapture his children and take them out of the world. And you might think that Satan is the one who's in control of that time. But if you read the text very carefully here in Revelation and other places, you'll find that God is the one who orchestrates all of that. And God allows Satan to set up the Antichrist in a kingdom on the earth where God will eventually show his power in the crushing of that government of the Antichrist. And then Jesus Christ himself takes over the, uh, to the world and, and sets up his kingdom. So Satan inadvertently becomes an assistant to prepare the world for the coming kingdom of Christ, where he will rule for a thousand years. So evil is going to be punished and will be shut down during the millennium. Well, Revelation 20, verse number 1 says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him in to the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Well, these verses are the beginning of Christ's millennial kingdom, and what they describe is the placement of Satan in prison. God's power is unmistakable, he sends a mighty angel to bind Satan and to put him into the prison of the abyss. Uh, we discussed this angel last week. Uh, we don't really know the identity of him, but I think that it's Michael the archangel, the one who commands the armies of heaven's angels. Now, of course, Christ is the one who ultimately uh, controls all of heaven and the armies of heaven, but he delegates authority. And he delegates authority to this particular angel that I believe is Michael, who already has a long history of contending with Satan. I think he is the angel that's chosen for the task. Satan is powerless to resist him because the power that he has comes from Jesus Christ who has all authority. And so Satan is restrained 
by this angel. Now, I want to look for just a moment. We'll turn our attention for just a few minutes about the method that he uses to control him. The scripture says that this angel has a chain and he binds Satan with it. Now, notice again, verse number 2, how the Bible repeats the many descriptions of Satan. He's called the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. One of the arguments about Satan is, does he really exist? Does Satan really exist? I mean, is he a person? Or, or, or is he just the same as evil? Is he, is he a Satan of force? Is he a concept? Well, the scriptures make it very clear that he is a person, and these are descriptions of his character. He is beastly, like a dragon. He's deceptive, like a slithering serpent. He's a deceitful backstabber. You know what we call a person who's very deceitful? We call him a snake in the grass. And so the poor old snake gains his terrible reputation because he has an association with Satan. So these scriptures make it clear that he is a person. He is called uh, the devil, and that means slanderer. He's called Satan. That means adversary. And you take all of these descriptions of Satan, and you roll all of that together, and you see why God has to remove him before the kingdom begins. God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And what Satan has always done is to destroy peace. And so if God is going to have peace in the kingdom, Satan has to be put away. Now what we find is that man's peace through the temptations of Satan were turned into hostility. And so the hostility of man against God became the same as Satan's hostility against him. And so God can't allow Satan to roam free when he establishes perfect peace on the earth. You hear it sung at Christmas time, peace on earth, goodwill to men. That is not going to happen until Jesus Christ comes to reign upon this earth. But what about the chain? Oh, you see that word chain and you think, is that a real chain? Well, maybe you see chain there and that looks simple enough. It's just a chain. But the explanation of the chain can draw us into long complicated theological discussion of various eschatological positions. And so you ask the question, how do you interpret that? Is that literal? Is that figurative? How much license can we take in interpreting the scriptures? Can we, when can we say that it's figurative and when is it literal? Or are the scriptures just allegorical? This particular part would lead us into a discussion of things like premillennialism and of amillennialism and of post millennialism, and you hear those terms, and you say, what in the world are you talking about? What does all of that mean? And it just shows you that the placement of just one word in the Scriptures can show us that, that the Word of God is so deep that we'll just end up discussing and discussing and discussing, and people have all different kinds of opinions. Now, this is a very difficult path that we tread when we try to decide in Scripture whether things are literal or allegorical. Now, just to give you a brief hint of what I'm talking about, there are some people who do take the Bible very literally. At issue here is how do we interpret the Bible. And so they believe that the Bible is, whenever possible, that we are to interpret the Scriptures just as they are spoken. So when you see angel, that means an angel. When you see a serpent, that means a serpent. When you see a thousand years, that means a thousand years. And I would say that mostly we fall into that camp. We do believe in a literal, grammatical interpretation of the Scriptures, and that we are to understand the Word of God literally, except when we know 
almost without question that what's being said is a symbol. But there are some people who want to take everything that's in the Bible and make it a symbol. And so they'll take the first chapters of Genesis and they'll say, well, that's not an account of creation. That's just an allegory. Adam was not the first man. Eve was not the first woman. And so they say, you know, evolution, that's the thing. And the Bible is just introducing us there to concepts of good and evil. It's not to be taken literally because everybody knows that man is just a collection of amoebas that got together one day and then decided to crawl out of a sludge pond. So we take the Bible allegorically, and we're not to take that literally. Well, there are problems when we start to use an allegorical method of interpretation of Scripture. Where are we going to stop with the allegories? When are we going to say, well, this is real and that is not real? So in Revelation, there are many people that don't want to stop, and they don't want to see what's real and what's not real. And so Revelation to them just becomes a hodgepodge of symbols that everybody has a different opinion about how to interpret. And so we say, take it literally, unless the text says that you just can't do that. Now this scripture shows the real problem of allegorical interpretation. What are you going to do here with the binding of Satan? How do we know that Christ is being literal here? And if, if, if we don't believe that there is a literal kingdom of Christ upon the earth, then the binding of Satan becomes a real problem for us. And many people believe that the kingdom that's talked about that comes to the earth is really just a spiritual kingdom. And people say, we're actually living in that kingdom right now, that this is the kingdom we're in, and it's coming towards the end, and one day it's going to end, and that's it. But what are they going to do with verses like this? What are they going to do with the binding and the loosing of Satan that this scripture describes? Now, the Bible says that Satan is very much loose right now. He is not bound. Peter said he's like a roaring lion. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. That doesn't sound like Satan is bound. Satan is on the loose. If we're living in the kingdom now, then we should see something that shows us that Satan is locked away somewhere where he cannot deceive. Now in Revelation 20 verse 7 and in verses, and verse 8, it says that Satan will be loosed again and then Satan will go about to deceive the nations. And so you look at that and you wonder then if this is, this is not actually what's going to happen. If we're living in the kingdom now, then how do verses 3 and 7 and 8 differ? When was Satan bound? When was Satan loosed? And that's the problem that you run into when you don't believe the Bible means what it says and says what it means. Now let me give you another interesting scripture that shows what will happen to Satan and his evil angels in the millennium. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24, the allegorical method of Bible interpretation will leave you with some serious problems, and one of them is when you look at what happens to the nation of Israel. And if you believe in an allegorical interpretation, then you'll have a problem with what you're going to do with the blessings and the curses that are put on Israel. The blessings turn out to be figurative, while the curses turn out to be literal. That's a problem that you're going to have. So how do we interpret it? Well, here in Isaiah chapter 24, I think we look at God's kingdom and we see a literal interpretation of what will happen with Satan. 
Verse number 21 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his ancients gloriously. Now, is that promise to Israel? Is that a figurative thing, or is that literal? Who are the host on high that are going to be punished? Oh, I think that refers to Satan and his demons. Listen to our text again in Ephesians chapter 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so that's the same thing that we see in the book of Isaiah. The obvious references to these evil demons that are in high places. And during the millennial kingdom, those demonic powers are going to be headed up by Satan, that are headed up by Satan, will be shut down and locked away in the abyss. Now, we're not living in the millennium now. And that's because Satan is very, very active. And there is no peace on the earth, as God promises there will be. And it might even be that Satan is more active now than he has been at any other time in history. Can you believe that he is? Is he more active now? Do you know that we might well be entering the last days before Christ comes? That Christ right now might be setting up the world for the tribulation period? It might be just around the corner, that terrible time? And then we see that Satan is very active. And you say, well, why does Satan need to be more active now than he ever was before? Well, some things that we think to, that are to our good can turn out to be for our bad, and some things that, you know, that make us enjoy life can actually become a problem for us because they may well usher in the time that Satan comes. I think technology is one of those things. Why would Satan be more active now than he's ever been before? Well, with technology, the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to reach the entire world. Satan never had to contend with that before. I mean, during the Old Testament times, during the New Testament times, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ was confined to very, a very small part of the world, and there were only a few people that had the truth of the Word of God. But now, Satan may be more active because of technology. There are good gospel programs that go around the world because of technology, television, radio, and and uh, all the computers and all devices that we have. The Bible has been translated into many, many different languages, hundreds of languages. And then also, we, English has become nearly universal so that the gospel is easily understood. So what's Satan going to do about that? Well, he has to stop the truth. And so he has his own broadcasting network. Did you know that? He's got his own. It's called TBN. And it goes around the world, even reaches more places than the true gospel of Jesus Christ, more than good programs like Grace to You that you might listen to on your radio, your phone, or whatever. You have TBN out there that's the tool of Satan to deceive people. Well, you still might be wondering about the chain. How can Satan, a spiritual being, be bound with the chain? So I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't know. I can't tell you everything. 
I don't know everything. The Bible doesn't explain this. Uh, John saw what he thought was a chain. And he saw Satan being bound with what he thought was a chain, and he was thrown into the abyss. So the only thing I really need to worry about, that tells me Satan is not going to be there in the millennium. Satan is going to be locked in the abyss, and he's not getting out. But I also see something else here in the text that guarantees that the world is not going to be bothered by Satan in that time. Verse number 3 says that he is chained, and also there is a seal that's placed upon him. Now, I want to show you what the seal is by using a contrast and how important that it is. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 is a great chapter filled with the purposes, the promises, the plan of God for his people. And in verse number 11 of Ephesians chapter 1, the text is talking about Christ. And it says in verse number 11, "...in whom also..." That is, in Jesus Christ, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Isn't that a wonderful thing? An inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We just made that point a minute ago. He's in charge of all things. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ and whom also... Uh, ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And listen, in whom after that ye believed, ye were sealed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You go over to the fourth chapter, in verse number 30. There it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now what you're reading there in those verses are just a, just a marvelous promise that God has given about your security in Jesus Christ. That if you are a believer in Him, you're safe. You, you, are, you have been sealed by God. You are protected by God. Now interestingly, that word sealed is the same word that we find in Revelation 20 verse number 3. What it means is to stamp something with a security mark. It's like a king taking his personal seal and with a signet ring, sealing it or pushing it into the wax to show that it belongs to him. And so what this scripture is telling us uh, in, our, in our personal salvation, Ephesians is telling us that that's the way that God guarantees our eternal security. He puts his own seal on us, a seal of protection, and you're never going to lose your salvation for any reason because God's seal is on you. The Holy Spirit keeps everything away from you, and there's no one that's going to harm you unless someone greater than God comes along to do it. Well, you know there's no one greater than God, so you don't have to worry about the seal being broken. Uh, Romans chapter 8 has a great discourse on this, and it ends this way, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot be separated from Him because there is a seal put upon us, and that seal is the Holy Spirit Himself. Now the same idea is present in Revelation 20 verse 3, but there's a contrast here. This time it is the devil that's sealed by God. The devil is held down by God. The power of God keeps him there. And again, that seal cannot be broken unless someone stronger than God comes along and breaks it. There isn't anybody stronger than God. 
And so Satan will remain there until God lets him out. Now, as I said, this is not Satan's final destruction. The abyss is not the final place for Satan. His destruction comes later. But there is a definite purpose for these years that Satan is in the abyss. That purpose is the purpose of, or the the peace of the millennial reign. Satan will be bound so that he does not interrupt the peace. Now finally for today, let's look just a little bit more closely at that, and that is the purpose of Satan's punishment. Ultimately it comes down to peace, and Satan is a destroyer of peace. His final punishment comes in chapter 20 and verse number 10, but what is the purpose of this temporary punishment? Well, the answer is given to us in verse number 3 of chapter 20, that he should deceive the nations no more. That's preparation for the millennium. How is it preparation? Well, the problem is that there are sinners that are in the kingdom. The kingdom that comes to earth will have sinners in it. These are people that must be ruled with a rod of iron. When Christ comes, the scripture says in the 19th chapter of Revelation, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. This is talking about Jesus. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now the point that I want to make here is that you don't have to have Satan to have sin. But what Satan does is to intensify sin. He snares, he sets the traps, he, he, in, he instigates sin, and he encourages sinners to act on the depravity that's already in their heart. Now, without Satan, people will still sin because their hearts are disposed to evil. But what God intends to do in the millennium is stop the incentive to sin. He's going to remove the excuse to sin so that nobody will be able to say, well, I can't help it. The devil made me do it. Well, there's not going to be a devil around to make them do anything. So they can't blame him for this. So when people sin in the millennium, it's proof that they do what they want to do without the devil's help. Even in a perfect environment, people will still sin. The the environment does not rule who you are. You can't blame the environment. Well, we'll talk about that later on as well as we study uh, at another time. So nobody's going to say, I can't help it. You know, I can't help it. I've got to sin. No, people will still sin without that perfect environment. But in the kingdom, the outside inducements to sin will be removed. And so sin, for the most part, will be locked down because Christ is ruling with a rod of iron. Now, I think that there are a couple of very important areas in which Satan will not be able to deceive, he'll be gone, so that's going to correct some issues. Now, many issues are going to be corrected, but particularly, I'd like to look at two of them for you today. The first one is that without Satan, there is no more deception about the written word. One of Satan's main tactics is what he does with Scripture. The authoritative standard for the way that you are to live is the Bible. Now, in the beginning of the message, I told you that people have their opinions and they assume that the Word of God agrees with them. And then when they find out that the Word doesn't agree with them, then they just discount the Word of God. It doesn't really matter. Now, in some cases, I would say in many cases, we find this in churches. People set the Bible aside. And 
they don't use it. They are Christians without the Bible. That's an oxymoron. That's Satan's oxymoron, Christians without the Bible. So if you go to a church where nobody carries a Bible, mark it down, the scriptures are not important to them. And the pastor of that church may, at times, read a scripture from the Bible, but then he gets as far away from the Bible as quickly as he can so he can begin to teach you his opinions. A desertion from the Word, that is a problem that's instigated by Satan. But there are also churches that people bring their Bibles to, and people say, we believe the Bible. And you say, well, how is it possible that Satan could be there? These are Bible believers. Well, Satan doesn't care if you bring your Bible to church, really. He doesn't care about that as long as you're listening to a preacher who misinterprets the Word of God. Bring your Bible all you want, but sit under my teaching, Satan says. Listen to what I have to say about it, and his teachers pervert the Word of God. They misinterpret the Bible. Satan has his false prophets that misinterpret Scripture. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the good preacher that, that gets it wrong from time to time. All of us do that because our interpretations can't be perfect because we're imperfect men. But when you see the Word of God consistently being misinterpreted, main doctrines of Scriptures that are twisted, then you know that Satan is at work. Do you think that all of these people out there in churches don't have some Scripture that they use to make their opinions their opinions? Don't they have something to support the doctrines that they teach? Are there no proof text that they have? Well, of course they do. Even their aberrant doctrines have proof text. You ask a Mormon sometime about what he believes. He'll take you to four or five scriptures that he uses to show, well, this is why I believe this. This is what the Bible says. Most of them know more about the Bible than God's people do. And do you know there are many Christians that are afraid to confront a Mormon because the Mormon knows by the Bible better than he does. They don't know how to defend themselves against it. And I would say shame on us if we're shamed by Mormons who know more about the Bible than we do. So they continually misinterpret. They twist the Scriptures. And you can do this. You can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say if you cut and paste. If you switch things from here over there, pull things out of their context, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Let me give an example. The JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, will try to prove the doctrine of annihilation. That means people don't go to hell, they just go out of existence. Lost people go out of existence. So they'll turn to a scripture like Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 9, verse number 5, and pull this out. And they say, For the living know not that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So they say, well, there it is. The dead know nothing, which means there is no conscious existence for unbelievers after death, and thus there is no hell. People just cease to exist. And yet, if you take all the Scriptures together, you'll learn that's not the interpretation of that Scripture. You look at what Jesus had to say about hell, and it's impossible to deny that there is a conscious existence after death, and people are going to be in hell for their rejection of Jesus Christ, where they will be tormented forever. Take all of the Scriptures together, and you see that. Now, with the devil gone, there's not going to be anyone to twist the words of God in Scripture. No one would dare do that, not when the righteous God has a visible presence, and he'll shut them down, figuratively, by whacking them with a rod of iron. 
And then there's something else that the devil does with God's word. He mistranslates it. Why do you think that we see new translations of Scripture coming out almost yearly? Do we need more translations of the Bible? Why are there so many of them? Why is there an NIV that leaves out whole portions of Scripture that you find in the King James Version? Why is that? Hasn't God put His approval on this Bible that we're using and, and for hundreds of years has used this to be the Word of God that saved people around the world? Why do we need to change that? Why do we need to make it something different? We don't. And that's why Satan mistranslates the Word of God. He knows this. This is what saves people. And so what is he going to attack most? He's going to attack the Word of God. And so he allows people to misinterpret it in order, and to mistranslate it in order to discredit the Bible with confusion. Make people believe the Bible is not really trustworthy. And what better way to cast doubt on the Bible is to say that the common man cannot trust the words of Scripture to be actually the words of Scripture. So Satan changes things. And he'll tell you, and his, his followers tell you, and the Bible critics will tell you that there is no way to determine what is and what is not in the Bible unless you ask us. And then we'll tell you what needs to be in the Bible. But let me ask you this. Who has the right to do what that king did in Jeremiah 36, verse 23? In that story, the king had a scroll of the Word of God that was given to him by the prophet. And he took that scroll, and with a penknife, he cut it up, and he threw it into the fire. And that's what many modern translations do. They cut up the Word of God, and they throw it away, and they say, you didn't really need that part anyway. Well, I kind of think that when we come to the millennium, God's Word is going to be established so that there is only one translation of it. Everybody's going to be looking at the same thing, and Satan is not going to be around to foul it up. But there's still another way that Satan perverts the Word. He also says that the Bible is not the only revelation that God gave. And neither is the Bible the final revelation that he gave. According to the Mormons, God gave another, another testament to a lunatic named Joseph Smith. And then the JWs say, well, don't leave us behind. We've got our scriptures too. We've got the watchtower. And that's more revelation of what God said. Don't let me forget the Pentecostals. They need equal time too. They've got their version of the revelation. They say the Bible's not the final authority. If you want to get it all, listen to us jabber in our tongues. And we'll tell you some more about what God would have you to know. And if you stick around long enough, we'll tell you about a vision we had. And we'll talk about a dream that we had. We had too much pepperoni pizza. Now we can tell you the Word of God. He's given us a new revelation. And then... The Roman Catholics say, well, we're not to be outdone. We believe that the church gives the authority to the Bible. And so we can change it any time we want. We can add anything that we want. We can do anything we want with it because the church tells you what the Bible is. Oh, the Scripture says, though, that God spoke through the prophets. And in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And God gave us the Bible, and that's it. That's the only revelation that we have from God. And the Bible alone is sufficient to tell us everything that we need to know about God, about life and salvation and holiness. It tells us everything that we need to know. And so we don't need another revelation. Now, because Satan perverts the written word, he has to be taken out during the millennium. 
Now, what does God say about knowledge of him during that time? Oh, we have this wonderful scripture in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll read it. If you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm not sure we have it up here. Maybe just the reference. But if you want to look at it, it's a great scripture where he describes this coming time. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Satan will not be able to destroy the Word. What God is going to do is write the Word of God on the heart, and people will understand the truth of who God is. Now, as I close today, God is going to shut down Satan and lock him in the abyss so that also there will be no deception about the living word. Who is the living word? John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So ranking high on Satan's list of deceptions is how he twists the truth about Jesus. He either turns Jesus into a God that will not punish sin, a God who loves everybody no matter what they do, and he'll tolerate anything that they do, well, he does that, or he makes Jesus no God at all. Now, what's the first problem? The first problem is Jesus loves you. No matter what, Jesus loves you. Jesus will take you sin and all. He will let you live any way that you please. These are people who say God would never condemn homosexuality because God made them that way. He won't condemn that. God's okay with that because that's an expression of love. And what is God? He is all about love. So what's wrong with consenting adults choosing the way that they want to love? I can promise you with all the confidence that I have, there's not going to be an incident of sodomy in God's kingdom. God's already dealt with that, hasn't he? He's already told us what he thought about that when he rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's already told us what he thought. I'm not trying to tell you what I think about it. I, this is not my opinion. That's what God's Word says. Satan will not be here to pervert the truth of what Jesus taught. He is Jehovah God, the one who rained down that fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's not all. He is also the God that said that he will cast sinners into hell. Now, all of us good Baptists that are sitting here will sit back in our smug self-righteousness and will point the finger at others and talk about their sin. And they'll say, that sin's worse than anything that I do. But you need to remember this. God does not tolerate any sin. He sees your sin in the same way. Just as homosexuals are going to be judged for their sin, God will judge you for your sin. Your sins are also up for judgment. And then this second problem of deception about the living word says that Jesus is not Jehovah God. Both Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses 
say that Jesus was a created being. That he's no different from Satan in that regard. Satan was created and so was Jesus. And Satan wants you to believe that lie. If you believe what Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses say about Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved believing what they believe about Christ. Now with JWs and Mormons locked away in God's kingdom, whenever you see a bicycle coming, it'll be safe to open the door because that boy's not a Mormon. God's not going to allow that. In the millennial kingdom, everybody's going to know better than that because they'll see Jesus and His visible presence ruling from His throne in Jerusalem. And all nations will flow into that place where Jesus is worshipped as God. Now this goes for anyone who perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what that religion is, if Jesus Christ is not believed to be the one true God and Savior of all men, then that person is going to spend time and all the rest of his time, in the fires of hell. Now God has to put Satan out of business. He has to put him in prison to stop all of that stuff. The millennial kingdom will be a kingdom of peace and of truth because that's what Jesus Christ is. He is grace and he is truth, and because he reigns and not Satan, there will be peace on this earth. Now I need to stop there. Next week in the Christmas service... I want to take that opportunity to show you what this thousand-year period, what the reign of Christ is going to be like when Satan is not here. Jesus Christ comes to be a king of his kingdom. And I want to tell you what that kingdom is going to be like. And that is a wonderful thing that ties into the birth of Jesus Christ because he was born for that, to be the king of that kingdom. Jesus preached what we find in the Matthew, and Matthew is called the gospel of the kingdom. There is a gospel of the kingdom, and he told what he came to do. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he promised eternal life in the regeneration. And that's a special term that's used in Matthew 19.28 that doesn't refer to being born again, but it refers to the being born again, the earth being born again, the regeneration of the earth that's going to happen when Jesus sets up his eternal kingdom. So trust him. This is what you must do. Trust him. Repent of all of your sins. Believe that he will save you, and he will. As powerful as Satan is, he can't do anything about that. He cannot touch you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone to save you from your sins. I encourage you to do that today. If you haven't done it, trust Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that time. And this time of year, the birth of Jesus Christ is a reminder to us that this kingdom will come to the earth. Jesus will reign in the kingdom that he has promised. But Lord, we also want people to see that he can reign in the heart of people now, and that is by faith in him. Turn people, turn their hearts to you, Lord. We pray that your gospel will reach the heart, that blinders will come off, that Satan's attempts to stop the word of God from penetrating the heart will be done away with. And Lord, that people will see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then help us as your people, especially in this time of year when there is so much opportunity because the world is in, in some way talking about the birth of Christ and seems to be cognizant of it. Help us to use that time to show friends and family and others, Lord, 
about the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he came to do. Lord, turn our hearts to you. May we glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I've told you in uh, these messages and talking about uh, Satan that how messages like this, though we spend time talking about Satan, they turn our attention away from him to the Lord Jesus Christ and magnify how great he is. That's the wisdom of God. That he can take a subject like this that, that looks so depressing, so down, talking about how powerful that Satan is, and then exalt himself by his great power in overcoming Satan. That's, I think, the purpose of God allowing evil to come into the world. And that's something that's been argued for centuries. Why did God allow evil? Well, it can only be for one reason. Somehow it's going to exalt who Jesus Christ is. So we thank, we thank the Lord for that. Even when we preach the subjects that we don't really care a whole lot to talk about, it still turns us to Jesus Christ because that's what the Word of God is for. It's to point out... Jesus Christ, and even Satan, as I said in the message, becomes the servant of Jehovah God to show how great that Jesus is. You don't have to believe the devil. You don't have to follow him. He doesn't have to control your life. Turn it over to Jesus. He'll take, he'll take all the burdens upon him. He'll get rid of them all, and he'll make you what you ought to be. Tonight in our message, we're going to talk about how sin develops. How does that start out? We'll talk about that tonight. And then in another message, we'll talk about how you're going to deal with it, how you're going to get rid of it. So we know Satan can be defeated. The Word of God says he can. He can. And there's a day coming when Satan is going to be put down, locked away. And then when that thousand years is over, he's done away with forever. Thank God for that. Thank God for Jesus Christ who came into the world. You need to know him. You need to trust him. Let's sing this last verse of our song. If God's spoken to you, come or go to the back, speak to those men, speak to me. We want you to know about Jesus. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.